Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Paul Hoiberg. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you very much. Um, Just by way of background, I'm in Salt Lake City on a cold April day. I'm ready for it to warm up. It's one of those cold um, April days here in Salt Lake City. Paul is in Sacramento, California, obviously over the phone. We do these via Google Hangouts. There's just an audio feed that comes into our recording software. What's the weather like in Sacramento, Paul? It's beautiful. It's beautiful and sunny. Uh, there's a shelter-in-place rule, so not many people are out, uh, but it's beautiful and sunny outside. Well, I wish I were there. I think it'd be a little warmer. Just by way of introduction to our listeners, Paul is an attorney in Sacramento, active member of the LDS Church in his mid-30s, and has an expertise in representing victims of sexual abuse, negligence, and other Um, crimes like that. So we're going to talk about sexual abuse. We're going to talk about in the context of with the pandemic and the quarantine is a lot of children are at home and it may be an increased chance that they become the victims of, of online predators. So if you're a parent or a guardian or an older sibling or want to protect yourself, Paul will give insights into what can be done. I wish I had kind of understood this better um, when I was raising children. Paul has some real expertise here, and the risk is probably higher than when I was raising children because children are online. They're doing online homework, online classwork. Um, They're just at home and have more access, and so bad people on the Internet have access to them. If you've also been what I call a survivor of sexual abuse, This may be a podcast that helps you. Paul has some insights um, that will help you. Um, By way of introduction, Paul is an attorney, as I mentioned, in Sacramento. He um, grew up in Idaho, served a mission in the Dominican Republic, um, then finished up in Minneapolis. He was sick, um, came home for a short period of time, and then finished in Minneapolis speaking Spanish. He's in his early 30s. Um, has two children and one on the way. Paul um, and his wife are friends with my oldest daughter, Abby, and her husband, Nico. Um, Paul, just give you an idea. He graduated from finance at BYU and then got a law degree um, at BYU. Paul, share with our listeners a little bit about your experience with the Ninth, the ninth Circuit. Yeah, so uh, between my first and second year of law school, I had the opportunity uh, to clerk during that summer for Judge Randy Smith on the Ninth Circuit. Uh, he was a very influential judge. Uh, actually, was out of Pocatello, Idaho. That's a cool experience. Awesome. He's worked closely with the Latino community and has helped um, represent um, Latino people who perhaps at times didn't know anybody else to turn to. He's been chair of the J. Reuben Clark Law School Society and has really been helping to help local chapters have more ability to help in their local community in ways that they see fit. Um, Paul has written for the church. He's um, a friend with Elder Cook. Um, They um, had a meeting where Paul, do you want to, I love what Elder Cook, as you were starting out your law career, do do you have this in front of you, what 
he suggested that could be done in the law profession? Um, yeah, so I had the opportunity when I was preparing for law school to go and meet with Elder Cook. And when Elder Cook had me into his office uh, to interview me, um, he posed a question and he said, I wonder what the reputation of the legal profession would be if every time we sat across from a client, an opponent, or anyone else, if we treated them like they had the potential to someday become like God. Um, that was a question that, that stayed with me. Uh, it's not always easy, um, but it definitely shapes the way I try to treat individual clients. You know, I love that, Paul, because in the us versus them, the culture wars we sometimes have and differences that be polarized, if we kind of go to spiritual brothers and sisters, pre-existence, children of the same Heavenly Father, and then like you and Elder Cook did, talk about our eternal potential, it has the way of unifying us and seeing the big picture. And I really like that. Will you tell the story? Yeah. One of the things that I think built empathy in you is um, talk about your, at birth, the physical complication that's been part of your life ever since birth. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, so when I was born um, in the weeks and in the months leading up to my birth, uh, my mom had some warning signs. There were going to be some problems. Um, she'd actually uh, even had a few feelings that there was going to be something uh, wrong with my right arm. So she had warned her doctors. Um, she had warned the attending physicians. And it was, it was just dismissed. They didn't think anything of it. And when I was born, there were some complications. And the nerves were permanently uh, damaged on the right side and on my right arm. And as a result now, um, there's a permanent lack of range of motion. Um, there's permanent uh, strength problems, and uh, it's, it's visible if you're looking for it, and it's been something that's been with me my entire life. So in the work that I do in helping people that have been victims or have gone through traumatic experiences, um, it's having grown up with those experiences, having seen what it's like to deal uh, with those trials on a day-to-day -day basis that really helps me develop that personal connection with them. Um, it, it's something that whenever people come in and tell me about what they've gone through, um, I believe them immediately. I believe them, um, I trust them, and I'm trying to do everything I can to try and build that trust with them. Why? Why is that? A, I, I help our listeners understand that why that part of your life as transfers over into your ability to have what you just said occur? Well, I became aware early on that when proper steps aren't taken, that when warning signs aren't followed, that there can be real damage that's done. And so for me, it's one of those things that as I help out clients that have gone through difficult situations, I'm able to draw on my own experience. When they're telling me of different instances in which, you know, they, they can't do something physically or emotionally, it's difficult for them to cope with a, a traumatic experience that they've had, I can reach back into my childhood and to, into my life and to say, I know what you're going through, or I went through something similar. And being able to reach that deeper emotional connection, it helps me then offer a bit of advice as to what I did. It also 
helps me give them hope that there's a lot of good in this world. Um, it just takes time and a, and a lot of work to find it. I love that, Paul. And I, I it's just interesting how empathy trans sometimes just is a, allows us to have empathy for people in completely different situations, roads that we've never walked, but because we've had a harder road, we sometimes have better Christ-like attributes to go there with people. Um, you in in this little outline um, before we went live, some of these terms. Will you share some of the terms? The most, if it's okay, the most derogatory terms you heard growing up about um, your physical disability or limitation. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, not I, to I re-traumatize, not to re-traumatize you, but just no, what it's like. No, this is this has been something that for me, um, having gone through it and then now being able to draw upon those experiences to not only help others, but also to be able to um, see what can happen and see what actual healing can take place. Now, when I look back in the past, even though at the time it was at times of difficulty and times of pain, it, it's kind of like that scripture in, in ether that, you know, as you come into God, um, those weak things become strong. So, um, some of the terms that I can remember, especially in high school, um, is that I would be playing basketball, and I was fortunate that I had uh, good friends, good mentors, and um, just I, I didn't believe that I was just going to let this keep me down. So I ended up playing varsity basketball, uh, ended up playing basketball, but sometimes when I'd be out on the court, um, I'd get uh, the opposing crowd starting to scream, uh, gimp, deformed, uh, cripple. You know, you'd have you'd, you'd have kids in middle school coming up, grabbing your arm, uh, telling them that you were telling you that you were deformed. And that was that was difficult from an emotional standpoint. Obviously, every kid growing up has difficulties, but that was difficult growing up to kind of view yourself in that way. And uh, just to get beyond what other people were calling you. Um, but like I said, I was I was blessed to be able to have some some really good friends and some good mentors. And you became a star athlete, um, a four-year golf. Um, you were your high school valedictorian of, of varsity golf all four years, varsity basketball, um, given Army Scholar Athlete of the Year Award. Um, this is roughly 15 to 20 years ago. What would you say to your younger self, Paul, in those, in those darkest days where you went home and had those words ringing in your head? I'm wondering what your future would be like. What would you go back and say to yourself now? You know, if I could go back, I wish I could go back and tell myself that every experience that you've had that is negative is not from God. And that every experience that you have that's negative, God can help you to be happier and God can help you to help other people. I wish I would have had that perspective. Because when you're in that moment and you're receiving those insults, you're receiving those, those trials, those difficult times, and even seeing what limitations that you have that didn't necessarily come because of your fault, you know, seeing physical limitations that you had that you didn't bring on yourself. Um, I wish I could have told myself that there's a bright future ahead. You're, you're going to have a wife that's going to love you completely. 
and that it is not going to affect her love for you at all. You're going to have kids that it is not going to affect their love for you at all. And you are going to be able to help out other people and use this trial to be able to make their lives better. And if I could have just told myself that in those darkest times, it would have been so, so helpful. It's a really good answer. We could end the podcast right here, but we won't. Um, <laughs> so you've got two kids, a third one on the way, you and your wife. What are you... I assume because of this experience, you're teaching your kids to to look out for those that um, are othered. Talk, talk about just what your, your parenting thoughts are so that your t- kids don't say those kind of things that were said to you. Yeah, absolutely. I think, obviously, first and foremost, it's just those simple answers of just being kind to people and just realizing how important your words are. Realizing that when you try to label people in those uh, derogatory or negative comments, they can have really long-lasting effect. Now, I've been fortunate that those negative words, even though they stayed with me, and even though I I still remember them, um, it's been a real strength now, but that's not always the case. And I think it's important to realize as you teach your kids that even though some of these things may seem like a joke or they're just going to say something and it's not going to have any sort of long lasting effect, but there are real repercussions when we label people in those derogatory terms. Yeah, I just, I, I'm grateful for um, parents like you and your wife. that are able to sort of tackle these harder issues and teach your kids in age appropriate ways. Um, let's. I want to move on to um, the subject at hand. Anything from your personal story at this point, Paul, you want to share with our listeners that I ha- we haven't covered? No, I think the thing is, is just to realize that um, those times that you go through are very difficult. It seems like they're never ending, but that indeed that time does end and that there can be different chapters in your life. And sometimes when you're in that chapter, you think it's just going to continue on and on. And, you know, when I was in the midst of that being called those names, I thought that that was how it was going to be labeled for the rest of my life. I thought that that's how everyone was going to treat me. And I think it's important when you're in that particular difficult chapter of your life to realize that certain chapters in life get ended and that you can start a new, different situation, different groups. And that there are other groups of people in other situations in which you don't have to feel that anymore. And in which it can be really bright, positive, and healthy. And I think that's something that as I deal with, with people that are victims and survivors, it's difficult for them when they're in that moment to, re- to believe that there's any other future that doesn't involve them being right at the heart of those insults and that trial. I think it's really important to to believe and to realize that those chapters can end. I love that. I love the visual of chapters ending. And I recognize when we get older in life, we can look back and see chapters that have ended. But especially as a teenager, it's, you know, it's pretty hard to see that when you're in the middle of it. And that's very helpful. It is. And I, and I would hope that if there are any teenagers that are, that are listening that may be going through this, 
to think constructively and to think, my gosh, what can I do with this experience that I've had to be able to make the world a better place? You know, what can I do to be able to help out people? Um, every single person has a unique voice. Every single person has such a unique set of experiences to see what they can do to be able to make other people's lives better or to be able to contribute to society in a way that could be beneficial. And I think just switching that mentality of saying, woe is me and kind of viewing yourself in almost in that negative and derogatory manner that other people are viewing you and seeing what can I glean from this to make others better is empowering. Love that. Let's talk about this podcast we recorded in April, as I mentioned to our listeners in 2020, we're in the middle of coronavirus and quarantines and all these new vocabulary terms like work at home, stay at home. And um, we don't often talk about current events in the podcast because the podcasts have a really long shelf life. And But this is one that is um, will be part of our society um, post-coronavirus, which I hope we get to, where just the risk of um, our children at home from online predators is just part of something that's the reality. And so talk about, let's just talk about that with the quarantine order that's in place for uh, most of the United States and most of the world. Talk about why this is an increased um, risk and parents need to take note. Yeah. So right now, with the majority of Americans and people being in quarantine or some sort of form of self-isolation, um, we are in a dangerous time. Um, when we talk about sexual assault and sexual abuse, um, it can happen to people of, of all ages. A lot of times we refer to and, and talk about it a lot with regards to children just because they're especially more vulnerable. Um, but this can happen to people of, of all ages. So. As you and I are talking about children, I, I want to make sure that we don't confine that to an age um, because it really can happen to everyone. But especially with children right now, um, children are alone. They're in isolation and they're also looking for connection. And so with that being said, every parent or grandparent, uh, friend and uncle should be on high alert that the individuals, uh, these children are, are vulnerable right now. And talk about, um, take us to the world of an abuser, um, what they, what their strategy is, what their game plan is, what, um, I don't know if there's just help us understand their tools to be, to, to get to our innocent children. Yeah. So when we talk about, you know, what to look for, it's important to recognize who to watch out for. Um, the real damage in sexual abuse is in the betrayal of trust. Um, trust is at the heart of it. And so abusers seek to build up trust and break down defenses or to silence warning signs. Uh, one of my colleagues who uh, represented a famous case um, told me that the real damage that's done comes from the breaking of trust. After that, particularly in children, it's hard for them to trust anyone, including themselves. The world becomes a confusing place because they can't trust anyone or, or anything in it. And so when you see a, of what to look for in abusers, it's important to realize that they come in all shapes and sizes. You're not just looking for a robber with a gun and a mask. 
Um, it's not just like they have one sort of um, type. Um, they can come in all shapes and sizes. So it's one needs to be careful to see that when you see warning signs, so not just dismiss it and say, oh, that person would never. A lot of times we, we see, and tragically we see that sometimes the abusers um, have a side of them that is noble, that is truthful and even charming. Um, they build up trust and then they break down defenses. Now this can be done gradually over time or it can be done quickly. But what abusers will typically do is they'll typically groom their victim. People may have heard this, this term grooming, uh, grooming their victim. What that means is that they try to gain access to the child and build a relationship with them, particularly on isolation or secrecy. Now, the biggest thing with groomers is that they want control. They want control over the child's behavior, over their thoughts, and over their relationship. Uh, many times, they'll require the child to be available often uh, in person or online. Now, right now, when it comes to abusers, uh, the two different parts that you need to be aware of is the in-person and the online presence. Now, quarantining has allowed us in the in-person um, types of abuses to be a little bit more aware. If you have a coach or if you have a teacher or somebody else that's seeking to violate the quarantine orders in order to have um, secretive or individualized or private conversations with the child uh, or with the youth, that should automatically flash up a warning sign. If they're looking to, to violate those order, if they're trying to get the child to break family rules in order to go out and see them, just them, those should be flashing up warning signs. Um, online, what will happen is that with a teacher or with somebody else, it'll typically start out where they start giving a lot of individual attention to the child. They'll start trying to get individual attention. They'll start trying to get individual conversations with them. They'll ask out a lot of questions. They'll ask a lot of questions about the child. They'll agree a lot with the child and try to pit the child against the parent. Um, sometimes you'll see this where they'll say, you know, mom, you, you say I can't use Snapchat or TikTok or one of these other social media forms to uh, communicate with this person, but they say I'm right and that you're wrong. Um, they go out of their way to give them really specific compliments about how smart, beautiful, or funny they are. Um, sometimes they, are, they offer gifts. And if you have somebody that's going and going out of their way to be able to offer the youth gifts, um, that should flash up a warning sign. Um, like I said, a lot of times it starts out as, as innocent. Hey, my, my kid's excelling. You know, this teacher is giving me, giving my child individual attention. Sometimes the parents can even be a little bit proud of it to say, Hey, they're, they're pointing out my, my child or the coach, man, he's spending all this time with him. He, he really thinks that he, he's going to do well, but these things can flash warning signs. Um, when it starts out as innocent, it, then, it can then lead to, you know, that person making uncomfortable comments, asking the child to lie, um, asking the child or the youth for pictures or, or video chats, or even revealing private information about the child. If it is another student that's, that's, that's doing the abuse, um, they'll start posting pictures of the, other, of, of, of the youth. They'll start revealing private information. 
they'll ask them to tell a secret, say, hey, let's let's tell each other secrets. Um, groomers and abusers will build that relationship with them out of secrecy and out of isolation. Now, once they get the child to start lying, once they start getting them to send pictures or video chats, it can then lead to um, them posting uh, nude pictures of the child, asking for nude pictures. Uh, they can also create deep fakes of videos of the child performing sexual acts. They can leave sexual comments, even sort of hidden sexual, se sexual messages. Um, they can start harassing the child about their gender, sexual identity, or how they look. These are things that if you start noticing what's being posted on your child's page or start seeing that this person is doing that, again, these should all be flashing warning signs to you. This is helpful and sobering. Um, you know, we're the parents of six kids, and at times we're not aware of any of our children being um, victims or survivors of any of this. Um, but what if, what if I'm a parent listening to this podcast, and I, and it kind of goes through my head that there's some adults in my children's lives that are really helpful. They're a little more involved than the typical adult. A teacher, a coach, a mentor. Um, how do I sort of sort out that what's appropriate involvement and what might be something going on that I'm not aware of that's more sinister? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that even though um, you never want to just be the one to view the world as all being negative and it's all bad outside, when you start seeing those warning signs, the worst thing you can do is to be ignorant to it. The worst thing you can do is just to say, oh, it's fine. Nothing's the matter. The biggest thing that you can do is start noting it. Start investigating. Start finding out more about it. Start making sure and, and being aware whenever there is that one-on-one -on -one contact. And even just allowing yourself to be present when you have those warning signs come up so that that way, um, the trust can't be built up and the defenses can't be um, broken down, that you can start to inject yourself somewhat organically, especially early on in the process. And I think that that's something that sometimes will even persuade the abusers to kind of take a step back or to alter their plans. Because what they would love is that they would love to be able to have complete control over your child and for them to be able to do whatever they wanted to do and sort of come and go at their beckoning call. But as parents get involved, really map out what those relationships are. Again, even though it's a scary time for our kids online, it is a good opportunity during this quarantine to see what those in-person contacts are. Because as opposed to other times, your kid's not bouncing from one athletic activity to the next extracurricular to the next extracurricular you know exactly what's coming in and out of the door physically. And I think that sometimes abusers will even try to violate those orders right now. And those can flash those warning signs. And it's at those point in time in which you can really start making note of it and really start being aware as to what they're doing and even perhaps even see what their intentions are. Is it, if I, is an abuser goal um, to have physical, inappropriate sexual physical contact 
with a victim or is or could it be just to have inappropriate online interaction that could in, involve exchanging of inappropriate pictures you know some it's it's different for everyone it's different and and there are a lot of different types you know it's uh, for for instance um you know the the definition of sexual abuse in california is the exhibit of genitals or pubic or rectal area for the purpose of sexual stimulation of the viewer. So uh, nowhere in that does it talk about actual touching. It's just the exhibit. And so sometimes that can be purely from an online stance that the abuse can take place purely through pictures. So for for the abusers, again, that's why there's not just a particular mold that you can say, okay, you can just spot them out of a lineup without necessarily knowing all the details. Um, that's why parents have to be keenly aware as to what those interactions with the child are. And even though it can be difficult, um, obviously, as, as we've seen with um, some of your pod, the people that you've had on your podcast, um, it can happen in an instant. Yeah, and it can be devastating. And it's always something that I would just advise parents just in general in this area. You're never going to regret being more cautious. You're never going to regret just taking an extra look and just being aware that much more. You're never going to regret that. What you possibly will regret is just trying to be ignorant to it. My gosh, how did we not see this? Why didn't we look for it? Why did we just brush this off? Talk about, um, uh, for our listeners, I'm going to ask Paul some questions, the warning signs um, in, a, in a couple minutes, because um, a bunch of questions have come to my mind, what our warning signs as parents. Before we get to that, talk about groups at risk. Um, there's several sure. of them that you, you want to talk about. Yeah, sure. There are some groups, obviously anybody's at risk, um, but there are some groups that have a higher percentage of who is at risk. Um, especially with all children, and, and we've mentioned uh, the reasons for that, um, but especially those who have recently moved, um, parents that may have been recently divorced, or those children who still haven't found that, that tribe of support, um, those children that are in isolation. Um, it's also important to recognize that children with special needs, um, there are certain studies that have been done that shows that uh, children with special needs can be three times more likely uh, to be victims of sexual abuse than other children, uh, which is tragic. And as far as school grades go, again, um, this is just kind of what those, those groups that are more at risk, it's not to say that the other groups aren't, um, but grades eight through 11, um, particularly uh, there's high degree of being a victim of sexual abuse. And would that be from peers that age or from an adult? It can be both. It can be both. Um, tragically, you know, there is uh, abuse um, by employees of the school, teachers, coaches, uh, clergy, and by other students. Uh, talk about religious leaders, just... Um about why that can also be a problem. Yeah, um, you know, we, we saw this, as, as you look in history, we saw this where um, that, especially with regards to clergy, 
um, it goes back to the trust aspect. You have these these members uh, of different faiths that trusted uh, their religious leader. Um, they trusted them completely blindly, and then as a result, uh, their defenses were down, and and tragically, sexual abuse happened. And so, that's why again, it's important that you be aware of what those warning signs are, what those warning signs are as far as who is coming in contact with your child and with your youth. Um, as we're both aware, even our own faith has some um, really tragic stories of a religious leader, um, a bishop, for example, and a person of trust um, being convicted of sexual abuse in that trust situation. And that is just heartbreaking, not only because of the sexual abuse, but the trust that you're talking about, Paul, and and perhaps complete loss of faith in the religion itself because of a trusted leader. And that just breaks all of our hearts when we hear that. And I've thought a lot about the progress the church has made. And um, I don't, you know, just with, I'm thinking if I was a singles ward bishop, but if I were a home ward bishop with all the changes, I would, I would do things like I'd probably talk to all the parents and, and talk to them and say, these are the, these are kind of the rules that I want to follow as I interact with your children. And I want you to be aware that the church policy is that you can be there um, as I interview your children. And these are the questions that I will ask. Um, and I would kind of try to explain those questions and they may change from age to age so that everybody's on the same level playing field before that interview happens, both the parents and the youth. So they would know what kind of questions I'd ask um, regarding worthiness, for example, which can kind of get into a tender spot if there's an appropriate leader. Um, and not to shame anybody that wants to have, um, I think so, there's something culturally perhaps where, well, I trust the bishop, so I don't need to be there as a parent or a youth, I trust the bishop. But I think there's I don't think that means that I think we can create a culture where we can still trust the bishop and have adults there at the interview and for youth to ask their parents to be there. And as I think it helps everybody, any thoughts on Absolutely. that top, any just thoughts on that? Um, you've got children that are going to be meeting with bishops. You know, you're kind of on the front end of this. We're on the back end with our last son being on a mission. <laughs> just any thoughts that's on that? Yeah, I don't think that there's any problem with the transparency. I don't think there's any problem with, uh, to your point, just being open. Because just as I've mentioned, and again, it's not a complete list, so um, there's obviously other components. We could sit here and, and speak for days about all the individual cases and all the individual instances that this occurs. But I think realizing that abusers prey on secrecy, isolation, and control. And so when a bishop or when a clergy exhibits the opportunity for it for them to not exercise control over the individual when they create a sort of a system of not of being able to tell them hey this is what i'm going to be asking these are the policies being very transparent i think that that becomes very very helpful and it helps create um organic and really helps create helpful and 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 wonderful trust that individuals can rely on and that can really um, lead to joy. 
I like that. I like the transparency. I've, I haven't really connected that, that if I am a bad guy, I'm not into transparency. <laughs> I'm into control and I'm into isolation. And I'm um, those, um, the things that I talked about that are available to a bishop and to a ward, I would be reluctant to do those if I had an agenda that was um, inappropriate. So that's uh, connects more dots for me on that. Um, yeah, I would, if I were a homeward bishop, I would welcome that. Um, there's even a side of me that recognizes that protects me in the rare situation where I would even be falsely accused as an adult. Um, exactly. I don't, don't want to go down that road too much because I believe victims, just like you talked about, but I recognize there may be some situations where that's protecting me. I was worried about that as times as a singles ward bishop. Um you know, those interviews were one-on-one for that age group. There was always somebody in the in the hall, but that's still a closed door. And I was, you know, I don't know how many interviews I did, Paul, but I was recognizing at times in the back of my mind the volume of those interviews. Um, I just recognized that that made me just a little vulnerable, um, perhaps, and nothing ever happened, so that was fine. But I've wondered about how to handle that going forward, even for that age group. Um, right. And I think and I think you're expressing something that uh, parents that may be listening to this kind of go, OK, so, man, do we just not trust anyone? Do we not allow our kids to have any interaction, give them the flip phone, not allow them to have any interaction? What do we do? I, I think it's important to remember, obviously, that you can be aware and limit the exposure that your children have. And it's not to say that, uh, you know, you just have to keep them isolated, close quarters, can't come in contact with anyone. But it's to be aware that when you have others that have ulterior motives and when they have those um, intentions that are not pure, to be able to take steps to protect them, to empower your child so that way they can cultivate and develop healthy relationships. And it's to protect them from those diff- from those harmful and bad ones. So sometimes when it comes to uh, talking to parents or talking to individuals about this subject, um, part of it is to kind of make them aware of what the realities are. But a huge part of this is to empower them, to empower them to say, okay, now I know who to look out for. Cool. I know what to look out for and I know what steps to take. So that way I don't just have to be afraid and just be ignorant. But just to say, what steps can I take in order to protect my home? And I re- and there was a, also a suicide, a real tragic suicide of a teenager here in Utah a couple of years ago. I read in our local newspaper, Paul, of somebody, he's just a great kid, and he got in a situation where he sent an inappropriate picture to somebody, and then that person, and they tracked, the police tracked that person to Libya, and that person was just mining vulnerable youth to be extorted for money once they got a picture of themselves. So that's another way that um, people become victims um, is through a financial extortion. Um, And they isolate them like you do, so they don't talk to parents. They don't talk to adults that maybe understand a better context. So if that's, I think it would be appropriate as parents to talk to our kids and about these things that you're talking about so that if they get themselves in a bad situation or they've done a little mistake, it doesn't lead to a, a gigantic mistake like taking your life. 
Any more on that before absolutely. we any more on that before we go on, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's one of those things that you have to make assessments of youth. You have to make them believe that it, they're not just in isolation, that it's not just them against the world, but that they are empowered and that you love them unconditionally. And I think that's something that as parents, when you have a child that comes forward and, you know, you've had other uh, people on your podcast come forward and, and mention that, that they had uh, gone through this experience, they had been abused, and then when they went to their parents, there was a reaction that was somewhat even more difficult than the experience. And I think it's important that for us as parents, when our youth do come forward, that they know at all times that we have unconditional love for them and that whatever they have gone through, we are going to love them completely. We are going to believe them and we are going to put our arms around them and that we're going to figure out whatever situation it is together. And I think just that sort of love and that sort of empowering in which they won't feel like they are sort of losing your love has to be a critical component between the children and their parents, because otherwise the children are, are not going to come forward. They're going to continue to dig deeper and deeper in isolation. And as you've seen, there, there are tragic consequences of that. Yeah, so that I just encourage parents to seek personal revelation on how to do that. I don't think there's a chart that says at age nine, you can have this conversation at age six. Maybe there is at age 15, but I think... I think what Paul is suggesting here is we have to talk to our kids about potential things that could come into their lives that we want them to talk to us about without sort of scaring them or putting thoughts in their brain that aren't age appropriate or they're ready. So it's a careful balance. And I don't have a magical formula on that, but the general principle is to, is to help children understand um, what people might want to do in general terms, enough that if that happens, that they recognize that they haven't done anything wrong and they'll talk to mom and dad. And just like you're saying, mom, Paul, mom and dad will react in in a positive way and a helpful way versus sort of make the child feel worse for something they've done. Um, especially in the example I use in those were older children where they exchanged, you know, a a picture, a naked picture of themselves with somebody. And that's a pretty embarrassing thing for a parent to find out that a child did or appear, but it can break the cycle that could lead to much worse things. And so as a way, we the only thing we tried to teach our children that they could come home and tell us any word they ever heard, and we would never get mad at them because we knew they would hear swear words. And they, we did, we wanted to create an environment where even if they told us a really bad swear word out loud or used it, not knowing it was a swear word, we would never react harshly. We would just educate them on what that word was. And I don't, I think that sort of is the principle you're trying to do, do as parents. I don't have any training in this field. So there's some listeners that know this a lot better than I do, but you're trying to create that um, feeling of, mom and dad are safe to talk to if there's something that maybe even I think I've done something wrong um, so that I can go to them and open up. And I know they're not going to react um, in a way that's, 
you know, going to be difficult for me. Any thoughts, on, any more thoughts on that, Paul? Oh, absolutely. I think as parents, you have to make the child feel like they are not a burden on you or that what they have gone through is not a burden on you in any way, shape or form. Um, and that you, like I said, love them. Drawing from a personal experience, when I would go to my parents and mention, you know, how hard it was at school with with what I was going through or how, how disappointing it was when I would be at a sports event that I, that I couldn't perform or, or do because of the physical limitation that I had. I never once got the sense from my parents that they were embarrassed at what I could or couldn't do or that somehow what I was doing was causing them pain that what I was doing or what I was encountering was somehow causing them to be disappointed or go through a trial for them. Because I think had I known that, um, it would have been so difficult for me, especially in my youthful self, to feel not only the weight that I was going through, but what I was feeling like I had caused other people to go through. Um, It wasn't until recently, actually within the last uh, month or two, where I sat down with my parents and actually talked with, talked about it and actually found out how many times, um, you know, they had just wept because of the pain that I was going through, you know, when they would see me in physical therapy and see uh, how difficult it was for me to go through that pain. I, I never once saw them uh, cry. I never once felt any sort of feeling like, oh man, this is hard on them. If anything, it was just, they were so empathetic. They were so loving and they were there to be a strength for me. It wasn't until later I found out man, this was really hard. The, you know, seeing me in pain was really, really hard on them. And I think that that's so important for parents to be able to let their kids know that they're not a trial for them. This isn't a, a burden on them to be able to help their child or to be there for them. It's, it's, it's what they want to do. They want to be there with them and to be able to help them every step of the way. And I think that's crucial. I love that, Paul. And it reminds me of a podcast we did of one of our gay church members who was watching gay porn and his parents didn't, he's a teenager and his parents didn't know he had a pornography problem and he didn't know he was gay. And he felt impressed after prayer to tell his parents, and this is obviously a different situation than your situation, but I don't know if I could have done this as a dad. Um, he reported, and I know this dad now, that after he, as a brave teenager, told his parents those two parts about his life, that he's gay and he's had a challenge with pornography, Dad said, these are the moments as a parent that we pray for. These are the moments that we are so honored that you'd open up with us about what's going on in your life. This is, this is when we get to be a parent. These are our paydays when you have the courage to open up like this to us about what's going on in your life. And that young man who I know better than the parents said that was one of the parenting home runs of his life was to have his father with the shame that he felt about um, those two aspects of his life and to have a father respond that way. And I love it's the same principle you're teaching, but in a different area of, of you know, us as parents wanting to feel like our goal with our kids is not perfection, but our goal with our kids, yeah, we want them to make choice, good choices and move in the right direction, but we also want to be able to walk with them and understand the road they're walking and create a, 
a feeling of trust and open communication that they'll invite us on their road so we know what it's like. And then we can do our best work if we really know what's going on with kids. And, and that's absolutely true. And it's one of those things that that's what we also see when we talk about what abusers prey on. They will prey on that idea of secrecy that, man, if you tell your parents, they're going to they're going to be so disappointed. They're going to kick you out. You have to keep this from them. You know, your your dad's a bishop. Can you imagine if everybody knew that you had been doing this or that you're this and that or, you know, just these negative repercussions and almost just make them feel in isolation and disconnected from their parents, um, that can just be tragic. That's a great example of that helps me understand more what an abuser would do and, and the isolation that what you just said creates. So in this last segment, um, talk about um, just warning signs. So I'm a parent going along and I'm starting, what are some warning signs for me as a parent that my child may be a victim or a survivor, ultimately, hopefully, of abuse? Sure. Um, there are physical ailments, there's emotional ailments, and then there's also just things, and I'll just kind of classify it as kind of the online warning, um, your youth attitude towards being online. Now, now, some of these, sometimes if somebody sees, some, sees one of these in isolation, they'll, they'll just attribute it and say, oh, that's just them growing up or that's in isolation. Um, but the combination, and when you start seeing things again, if parents are listening to this or if somebody's listening to this, it's to alert you and say, okay, I have seen that. I have seen that. And it's not definitive that every single time you have these symptoms or you see these things, um, these warning signs that there's an abuse that's taken place, but it should alert you. And it should make you realize and say, okay, can I, I've got to do some more investigation. I've got to take some more steps. There may be something here. Um, with regards to the physical ailments, there are some that are um, pretty, pretty clear. You know, if the youth has a sexually tr transmitted disease, um, if you notice them having difficulty walking, standing, or sitting um, without any sort of um, medical diagnosis or, you know, acute trauma, um, if there's been discharge or bleeding from the genitals or mouth, um, if they do have excessive or compulsive masturbation, if they complain of pain during bowel movements, um, sometimes with younger children, uh, you see that they revert back to thumb sucking or bedwetting. Um, if you see a youth that's past that stage and clearly past that stage, if they start reverting back to that, that can be a warning sign. Um, severe appetite changes. A change in sleeping patterns, either excessive or inability to sleep. They may desire to not be touched in any way. Uh, they may have radical shifts in grooming or bathing. Um, they may have agitation or resistance at bedtime or bath time when clothes need to be removed. Or for older children, they don't bathe or refuse. Uh, they don't bathe at all and refuse, or they bathe all the time and don't consider that themselves, quote unquote, clean unless they do. Um, they may be wearing clothing that either exposes too much of their body or hides as much as possible. Um, they may be dressing to be overly protective of their body. Um, other ways, other physical ways that you may notice is if there's a cruelty to animals, to friends or to siblings. Um, they have destructive behaviors such as self-harm and, uh, and hurting themselves. 
um, non-appropriate mature behavior. Sometimes we see this with, uh, you know, younger children being overly sexually aggressive. Uh, for younger children, it can involve doing sexual behavior with dolls, toys, drawings. Um, if there's violent or sexually explicit art, writings and drawings, um, those are just some of the physical ailments. It's not an exhaustive list, but those are just some warning signs that people should be looking for. As far as emotional ailments, um, sudden bursts of anxiety or panics, um, unreasonable fears, excessive clinginess, depression, um, crying, uh, even what you kind of notice, a, a loss of light in, in the youth, uh, withdrawn behavior or isolation or secrecy. We've already mentioned that a lot, that uh, abusers will seek to uh, have an isolated or um, secretive relationship with them, and the youth may feel like that's their only relationship that they're worthy of is the relationship with that abuser. And so they may withdraw from other people. And then even distancing themselves from any relationship, siblings, parents, anyone. Now, with regards to their online use, I know, with their online use, um, it is important because you get a lot of youth right now that obviously there's just, there's not a lot to do. So they're either doing their classes online or they're, they're gaming online. But if, if there is excessive time spent online, um, if the child is withdrawing and trying to be secretive about what they're looking at, um, they become obsessive about being online. They have to constantly be, be there and, and available. They get angry and even violent when they aren't online. Or they change the screen and turn off the computer when an adult enters the room. Um, this is something that, like I said, some of these symptoms, someone may, may attribute them to, to growing up or to other things. But parents shouldn't just brush these off or be ignorant. They need to be active and be involved. It's sobering when you go through that list, Paul, and neither of us want to create more anxiety for you parents that are listening. There's already enough anxiety with, um, with what's going on with coronavirus. But I think being educated and informed is part of what Paul's doing. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, let me ask a question. If I see some of these signs, um, what's the best thing to do as a parent? Do I talk to my child and try to get them talking? Do I send my child to a therapist, so a therapist with clinical skills? Could I figure out what's going on? A little bit of both. Obviously, yeah. prayer can be very helpful so to I receive personal is, revelation. Yeah, absolutely. I think at first, obviously, is if you if you do see a warning sign, to start being more alert, that's the very first thing. Uh, sometimes people recommend keeping a journal or a note. Um, I think it's also really important that as you talk to them, that you make sure that you don't make them feel guilt, that there's always kindness and never shame, and that you're there for them. You're not accusing them of anything. Um, if you do worry um, about what is going on online, um, there are a number of sites that they can get in order to track online. And, you know, if you have a youth, you should know every one of their passwords. You should know every one of their accounts and every one of their passwords and just have a transparency um, with the youth. Um, there, there's, there's online monitoring services like BARC, uh, Norton, 
Uh, there's a number of good ones in which basically it just syncs up to all their accounts in which you can really monitor every bit of activity. There are some very good ones. And I think that that, especially in this time, I think that needs to be important for all parents to do if their youth are online. Um, parents need to know what their child is using, if they are using Snapchat, if they are using uh, TikTok, if they are using the other services. Um, there shouldn't be secrecy as far as social media goes. And I think with what you're talking about, um, absolutely using, utilizing the resources that are, your, that are at your disposal with the therapist, um, speaking with them. But as you go and as you speak with the youth, making sure, like I said, to, to not push them too hard right at first and almost come from an accusatory nature in which they're going to get immediately defensive and retreat. But this can be something that can even be done where you approach them, approach an older child in their teens and say, hey, we've got we've to create this family plan of we're going to be open and transparent during this quarantine. So we're going to open up all our social media accounts. Um, we also need to make sure that we're protecting your younger brothers and sisters. How do we do it? You know this stuff better than we do. How can you help us protect them and protect our family and almost just empower them? and make them feel like they're important, like they're knowledgeable, um, and set guidelines together. I like all that. Um, another section of sexual abuse we haven't talked about is sort of um, when the, the perpetrator's a family member, um, and it's sort of happening within the house. It could be an older sibling, you know, towards a younger sibling, a somebody that comes over frequently. Um, and how, if I'm a parent, um, any thoughts on how I sort of become aware that might be a challenge that's going on in, you know, with some of my kids? Yeah. So, uh, like I said, right now I'm monitoring physically who's coming in and out of the home. Um, it's it's somewhat of an easier time than at other times. And so right now you you should be, you, you can monitor as to who's coming in and out of the home because with the quarantine and with the isolation measures, um, you should be seeing who is stopping by, who is at home, who's spending time with my kids. If it may be an older sibling, obviously it's it's seeing what the behaviors are and recognizing, again, that isolation and secrecy. When is the child in isolation or secrecy when the others, what's going on. There may be other monitoring things that you can put up, you know, cameras inside the home, not to necessarily catch them, but just to be able to monitor monitor them and to be able to make sure that there's some transparency and that there's not secrecy. Um, you know, as far as contacting uh, therapists and contacting other members, um, you leave that up to the parents to when that's the best time. Um, but obviously what I would always say is you're never going to regret being more careful and being more vigilant. I like that. And as it's, as it's, as it's done in love, as it's done, not in an accusatory nature, it's done more from a protection and more from a love standpoint than from a condemning and we're going to catch you mentality. Yeah, I like that. And I, I, 
the stories that I'm familiar with in my own life from the people I've met and some of the podcasts or just individual interviews are a lot of these victims that are victims in their roughly age six to 20 uh, victims of sexual abuse or survivors now. It's been family members that have been the per- perpetrators. And I don't know if I, you know, I love your advice. I think you probably, if you you, you would look for the same warning signs. I would have to think of a child is being victimized in their own home by another trusted person in the home. That child is exhibiting some of the behaviors you're talking about, the same behaviors that if they were a victim from a stranger. Um, so I think that that's very helpful. I do think um, if I were to go back and be a parent to younger kids, I would probably have more honest discussions about what what inappropriate touching is and what people should or shouldn't be doing to your own body. Um, it's, you know, we, we used to call them their private parts, I think. And um, I don't, you know, I don't know why we came up with that and kind of helped them understand that the private parts of their bodies are areas that other adults do not touch. And, and we kind of kept it pretty general, I think, most of the time. But maybe there's, I would assume there's listeners that have much more expertise there and there's probably wonderful books and resources, but I would encourage maybe a good time during the quarantine for all of us parents to have more education on. And some of that comes naturally for parents to talk about this kind of stuff with their kids. And some parents, that's really awkward. (laughs) It's sort of like talking your kids about the birds and the bees. Some parents that's probably comes more natural than others. And, um, but I think all parents have a, have the ability through education to be able to talk about that in a healthy, appropriate, non-shaming Sometimes when we talk about that stuff, we create shame. I, you know, because, you know, I don't want to, my parents are awesome, but when they talk to me about the birds and the bees, I felt some shame around that. We went the way we, the tones we used in our voice and the secrecy, and there was some shame created a little bit when I learned that as a teenager, that I hope I did a little bit better with my kids and they'll do better. But I think we have to not create any shame or embarrassment as we talk about these um, topics with our children so that then they don't internalize that and are more likely to open up. Any more thoughts on that, Paul, as we're just kind of talking about this complicated stuff? No, absolutely. I, I think even um, what we're talking about with family members that could potentially be abusers, that's why, as we mentioned at the beginning about what abusers look like, um, this isn't just some, you know, um, person that, you know, is, is online, they're gross, they're, they're not well kept. Um, they come in all shapes and sizes. And sometimes the abusers uh, will be charming, have honorable, you know, qualities. And that's part of a way that they dilute themselves and even justify in their mind what, it, what control and what they're doing to the other individual. So it's important to recognize that as parents, it's not just you see somebody and you kind of put them in a lineup, you know, a police lineup and say, oh, yeah, I can spot them. That one looks like one. That one looks like one. It really is being able to take a look and saying, "Okay, who's interacting with our children? Who's interacting with them and to what degree? And and what is what is the nature of their relationships? And what are some good guidelines that we can do in order to be able to 
to talk with our children and to your point, to empower them. So that way they can recognize this isn't an appropriate relationship. That's not an appropriate touch and empower them with the tools, the knowledge, and even the ability to know what they should do in case that happens, um, what things they can do. And I think that is so empowering and that can really draw a lot of strength to the parents and to the child as they help them know what to do before an act like this takes place. I like that. And this is a little off topic, but we talk about LGBTQ in this podcast, as our listeners know, and I've turned in a manuscript for a book. And one of the one of the burdens we sometimes put on gay Latter-day Saints is we think they're more likely to be sexual abusers or um, and they're really clear in the research I've looked at that there's a difference between sexual orientation and being a pedophile. Um, yeah, there's some stories of gay people being pedophiles and straight people being pedophiles, but um, one young man who's gay came out as gay in age 15, 16, 17, had younger brothers, and his parents kind of wanted to separate him from his younger brothers. Um, there's an active Latter-day Saint um, in his 30s, and when he came out as gay, he's active in the church. His, um, his brothers kind of want to separate him from his nephews, and and that just added to the burden. Um, this Both of these good men said, you know, I have the same natural instinct to protect children that straight people do. So, you know, the society is kind of um, has an assumption there that um, I think adds to the burden of LGBTQ Latter-day Saints to sometimes associate um, being a pedophile with sexual orientation. Sure, there's some examples that that has happened to sort of make that a, um, a, a to sort of make that assumption is unfair, and the research does not support that. Um, anything? We're kind of at the hour mark, Paul. Anything else you'd love to share with our listeners? Um, the thing that I just want to let them know is that when let's say that you are listening to this and you have gone through something, um, it's to remember this that with regards to people who have been victims. Yeah, talk um, about victims, good. This is this is one of those things that they need to realize that there is healing that can take place and that they have a lot of joy in their life that they can live. There is healing that can take place. There are resources at their disposal. Um, not only is, is there an emotional component from therapy, uh, online sites that they can that they can join support groups, but there is really a tribe that can help build you up and that can help support you. Um, there are recovery centers that are fantastic that can help people that have been through traumatic experiences. And just as we mentioned early on, um, I would hope that people that are in that chapter in their life that they can realize that this doesn't have to be the chapter that they're going to live for the rest of their lives, but that there is a real healing that can take place and that there is joy that can come in the future. Um, they also need to realize that there are resources at their disposal, uh, including legal resources. You know, that's, that's what I do as a lawyer. Um, I practice in California. I, I don't know what the laws are in, in Utah, but in California, um, 
you know, we've changed, there's been a number of changes in laws recently that have empowered victims and have allowed them to be able to bring forth uh, their claims. And I would just hope that individuals would recognize that there, there's help. There's help and that it's not their fault and that they can be empowered. And there are people that genuinely care for them, family members and those close to them that genuinely care about them and that won't define them as a victim or won't define them as this, uh, label them. As, as I mentioned earlier on in, in my earlier life, I don't consider myself to be labeled in those derogatory terms that, that I was called early on in life. Um, now I'm a father, you know, I'm a husband. That's, that's my label. I, I'm a dad. And being able to put that prior chapter and close that prior chapter, um, I've drawn strength from those and it's made me better, a better father and a better husband and a better person because of it. And I would just hope that people can remember that. I love that, Paul. What a great um, segment to close on. Um, I'd like to thank Paul Hoiberg. I'm going to spell his last name. I didn't at the beginning. H-O-Y-B-J-E-R-B-J-E-R-G. Is that right, Paul? Yeah, H-O-Y-B-J-E-R-G. And what nationality is that? I'm thinking that's somewhere in Scandinavia, but I'm not very good at names. Yeah, it's Danish. It's Danish. And so thank you, Paul, for being on the podcast, for your insights as a father, as a Latter-day Saint, um, to your legal work, and what we can do as parents to protect our children in this in this world. And I love how you close with hopeful words for victims. And this visual of closing a chapter is a wonderful way to be able to move forward um, that I think is consistent with what Christ helps us do with the atonement. He helps us close those chapters through the healing power of the atonement so we can move forward. And and then sometimes as we close chapters, we don't we bring with us the increased Christ-like attributes and gifts and ability to empathize and mourn and comfort that you have as part of um, your journey with your physical complication in your arm. And I think all of us have some of that, and it makes us the wounded healer, the ability to be able to reach people in a unique and authentic way that can help them close chapters and move forward. So Paul Hoiberg, thank you for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. This is Richard Osler, your host, signing off. Mm-hmm.